0: In her opinion for U.S. versus Virginia about whether an all-male admissions policy at the Virginia Military Institute violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, Justice Ginsburg made this observation. She wrote, The heightened review standard our precedent establishes does not make sex a prescribed classification. Supposed inherent differences are no longer accepted as a ground for race or national origin classification. And then she cited Loving versus Virginia from 1967 case that struck down laws against interracial marriage. And then she said, Physical differences between men and women, however, are enduring. The two sexes are not fungible. A community made up exclusively of one is different than a community composed of both. That last part was a direct quote from another case from the 1940s about all-male juries. Responding to the argument that an all-male jury would be representative of the community, the court observed that an all-male jury would be different and less representative of the community than a jury made up of men and women together. And the same, of course, could be said of an all-female jury. Men and women are not fungible or interchangeable. They're different. And a community made up exclusively of men is different than a community made up exclusively of women. But different in what way, exactly? And in what way are those differences relevant to constitutional law? Justice Ginsburg notes that there are physical differences between men and women, but then she goes on to conclude that those physical differences don't justify excluding women from the educational opportunities at the Virginia Military Institute. And so it begs the question, in what areas of law would those physical differences justify treating people differently on account of their sex? couple of examples that probably would have come to mind in the 1990s would have been sex-segregated public restrooms, exclusion of females from certain units or position in the U.S. military and even from the military draft, and the federal definition of marriage passed by Congress in the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996, the same year as Ginsburg's opinion in U.S. v. Virginia. All of those examples are politically contested and fraught today, particularly as the debate has turned not just to sex, but to sexual orientation and gender identity. In that same year, when the court decided the case of U.S. v. Virginia and President Clinton signed the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, the Supreme Court also heard a case called Romer v. Evans. The background was this. Some cities in Colorado passed ordinances that barred discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation in housing and employment and in public accommodations. Sexual orientation here, as it was defined by one of the statutes, meant one's, quote, choice of sexual partners. Voters in Colorado then amended the state constitution to say this, Neither the state of Colorado, through any of its branches or departments, nor any of its agencies, political subdivisions, municipalities, or school districts, "...shall enact, adopt, or enforce any statute, regulation, ordinance, or policy whereby homosexual, lesbian, or bisexual orientation, conduct, practices, or relationships, shall constitute or otherwise be the basis of or entitle any person or class of persons to have or claim any minority status, quota preferences, protected status, or claim of discrimination." The question for the court was whether the state constitutional amendment violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Was the state's constitution unconstitutional? Like other equal protection cases, one of the important initial questions was what standard of review would be used to evaluate the claim. Justice Ginsburg brought up just this question during oral arguments when she asked the Solicitor General of Colorado, Timothy Timkovich, now the chief judge in the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals, what the right standard of review would be for this case and how it would compare to a state law that barred local governments from passing ordinances giving women the right to vote.
1: The same year that Amendment 2 was enacted. Mr. I was trying to think of something comparable to this, and what occurred to me is that this political means of going at the local level first is familiar in American politics. In fact, it was the way that the suffragists worked when they were unable to achieve the vote statewide, they did it on a city's first approach. And I take it from what you are arguing, that if there had been a referendum that said no local ordinance can give women the vote, that that would have been constitutional. No, Your Honor, I think
0: that that classification would be analyzed under this court's equal protection and jurisprudence on suspect Well, class cast your mind right.
1: back to the days before the 19th Amendment.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I, think the, I think the court would apply the traditional equal protection analysis. And what would have happened?
0: They would have determined whether or not there was a fundamental right to vote that had been impinged on, or whether but there women, was no right
1: to vote for or, women.
0: Right, or under the 14th Amendment, or whether women were a suspect class entitled to some heightened scrutiny in the circumstances.
1: And if they weren't?
0: If they weren't, the court would in, would, would enact in a rational basis type of review.
1: Yes, and that's what you're urging here.
0: We're urging, yes, we're urging for this classification that the court engage in a rational basis type of review. No court has found homosexual orientation co- or conduct to be a suspect classification. Therefore, the traditional equal protection model should be applied in this case. In the end, the court agreed with Timkovich's argument that this should be looked at under a rational basis review standard. Sexual orientation or identity was not a suspect classification, according to the court, and so it didn't demand strict scrutiny. Nonetheless, in an opinion written by Justice Kennedy, the court concluded that this new constitutional amendment lacked a rational relationship to any legitimate state interest. It failed even under a rational basis review. Justice Kennedy was then the author of a series of opinions we discussed back in episode 11, that led first to the repeal of state laws against consensual sodomy between adults, and then to the recognition nationally of same-sex marriage. That latter case was Obergefell v. Hodges in 2015. With those precedents, those cases in the background then, the court heard a consolidated case last summer about people who had been fired from their jobs, either for being gay or for being transgender. In one case, a man was fired for playing in a gay recreational softball league another for coming out to his employer, and a third for changing the public presentation of his gender from masculine to feminine. The case was called Bostock v. Clayton County, Georgia, and it wasn't a constitutional case involving the Equal Protection Clause, but was rather a statutory case about the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Title 7 of the Civil Rights Act makes it illegal for an employer to discriminate based on race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And what the court said in this case, in an opinion written by Neil Gorsuch, was twofold. First, the word sex in the 1964 Civil Rights Act refers to, quote, biological differences between males and females, presumably those same physical differences between men and women that Justice Ginsburg made reference to back in 1996. But second, that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity is tantamount to sex discrimination. As Gorsuch wrote, An employer who fires an individual for being homosexual or transgender fires that person for traits or actions it would not have questioned in members of a different sex. Sex plays a necessary and undisguisable role in the decision, exactly what Title VII forbids. That decision came over the dissents of Justices Alito, Thomas, and Kavanaugh. In his dissent, Justice Alito said that, quote, discrimination because of sex means discrimination because the person in question is biologically male or biologically female, not because that person is sexually attracted to members of the same sex or identifies as a member of a particular gender. The fault lines on the court mirror, in some ways, the fault lines in our culture at large right now. The debate and focus so far has been about statutory rather than constitutional interpretation, and the political debate at the moment is about legislation. The House of Representatives recently passed the Equality Act, which would amend the language of the Civil Rights Act and other federal anti-discrimination statutes to explicitly forbid discrimination on the basis not only of sex, but also of sexual orientation and gender identity. It would make explicit in the law the interpretation of sex discrimination put forward by the court in Bostock. And to connect the Equality Act to another theme from our class— passed by the House, it contains a section that would make the Religious Freedom Restoration Act inapplicable to claims of discrimination. There would be no religious exemptions from the generally applicable terms of the Equality Act. And that all takes us back to politics. This is a political science class, not a law class, and so we've tried to understand constitutional law not from the perspective of a litigator seeking to win a case, but from the perspective of students of politics interested in the question of why things are the way they are. How did we get here? We've really only scratched the surface on that question, and I hope that you'll take away from this course a deeper knowledge of our Constitution, both the document and the actual small-c Constitution of our government as it's developed over time, as well as a curiosity about the bigger questions that are always part of the project of constitutional self-government that began in a unique way for us in the summer of 1787. Thank you.